According to the National Cancer Institute, cancer is expected to affect one in every two people in their lifetime, but a revolution in biology is driving significant advances in cancer diagnostics and treatment. The listed company opportunity set tied to oncology continues to expand significantly, but oncology remains a complex sector which requires expertise to navigate. Introducing the TEMA Oncology, C-A-N-C-E-T-F. Invest in the prevention and cure for cancer. Visit TEMAETFS.com or contact your financial advisor to learn more. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at TEMAETFS.com. Read carefully before investing. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right. Joining me will be Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. And we have some very interesting ETF topics to get into, including a story that was all the rage a few years ago, but it's not so much here recently. And that's ARC and Kathy Wood. And yes, I, I know they still get plenty of uh, media coverage. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is looking at their ETF business without all of the hype and hyperbole. Because if you look at their ETF assets over the past several years, they were around $60 billion in assets in February of 2021. That's uh, U.S. ETF assets. But if you look now, they're down to less than $11 billion. So $60 billion to $11 billion in about two and a half years. And obviously, a lot of that has been market-driven, but there have been some outflows more recently as well. So Laura and I are going to discuss ARK's business and really just look at the so-called disruptive tech ETF space overall and what the future might hold there. We'll also spend a few minutes covering this Fidelity filing last week for an ETF share class of their mutual funds, which that, of course, follows PGIA and Dimensional doing the same earlier in the year. Now, I think most people are aware Vanguard's patent on this uh, share class structure expired in May. And so now any fund company can pursue this. The challenge is that Vanguard was only using this for index-based ETFs, and they got this through the SEC a long time ago, whereas these other firms want to use this for active ETFs. And the SEC is, uh, let's just say, a little more discerning around this structure now. So Laura and I will get into that. And then with our uh, remaining time, which I'm sure I won't leave us enough of, 
I want to find out which ETF stories she's uh, watching the remainder of the year. Now, I'll also be joined this week by Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor at ETF.com. And for those of you who follow the ETF space fairly closely, I'm guessing you're already familiar with Jeff. He's been on the ETF beat for a while now. He was previously over at Investment News. He was at Cerulli and uh, Dow Jones Newswire before that. I think he does a fantastic job of covering the industry. And so I'm looking forward to this. I thought given that we have quite a few financial advisors and ETF industry professionals who listen to this podcast, I thought it would be interesting to hear the perspective of someone who covers this space in terms of which types of stories they find intriguing, uh, what they want from someone who uh, covers the space in, in, in terms of good knowledge experts and resources, what makes for a good interview, things that you should and shouldn't be doing when interacting with someone like uh, Jeff. This should be good. And uh, also, like with Laura, I'm going to ask Jeff which ETF stories he's watching right now. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci or you can go to etfprime.com. Let's chat with uh, Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Okay, so let's start with uh, ARK Invest and Kathy Wood. And you just heard me there at the top give those asset numbers where ARK has gone from $60 billion to less than $11 billion in about two and a half years. And I, I do think there are several paths we can head down here, but l- let's just start higher level. I'd love to have you give us your current assessment on the state uh, or health of ARC's ETF business, which is now nine years old, by the way. That's kind of hard to believe. But just high level, how do you view ARC at the moment? Yeah, they've had kind of a rough year and a half, haven't they, right? Um, So to put it in perspective, ARC is still among the top 20 ETF issuers with the highest revenue. They're still bringing in an estimated 80 million uh, on their ETFs. They only have eight of them. So, you know, lots of other ETF issuers would love to be where ARC is right now, but it's hard not to compare them to where they once were, right? So at one point, they were in the top five of ETF issuer revenues, and now they're down to 18. So much further down the leaderboard there. And a a lot of that fall from grace, so to speak, has to do with some pretty awful performance in their flagship funds. Uh, ARKK is down 8% over the past year. ARKG is down 32% and so on and so forth. So but I, I think nothing is really more telling than what's happened to them in, in 2023, where we've seen some genuinely disruptive technology emerge in the form of artificial intelligence. And and this was a disruptive trend that Kathy and, and her team identified as a force that was going to be important nine years ago when they launched their autonomous tech and robotics ETF, that's ticker uh, ARCQ, yet ARCQ is down 1% over the past 12 months. 
compared to the broad tech sector ETF, that's XLK, that's up 27%. So if ARK was able to accurately predict this trend that AI was going to take over the world, why weren't they able to capitalize on it, right? So something's not working here. And from what I see, ARK still has their diehard stalwarts, but you know, your average investor, your average retail or, or uh, you know, financial advisor investor is kind of disillusioned with them. That's a great point on um, the AI and, and maybe not fully capitalizing on the performance here. We had the AI mania earlier this year. But if we take a step back, and maybe we can, we can come back to AI here in a moment, just higher level, and you hit on this, clearly a lot of ARK's asset declines have been market-driven. You, you mentioned an ETF like uh, ARKK, the ARK Innovation ETF. I went back and looked. That's down nearly... 80%, 80% from its yeah. February 2021 peak. Now, I, I've said before, um, look, say what you want about ARK and Kathy Wood, but the one thing that they have done is they've stuck to their knitting in that you know exactly what you're getting from their ETFs, for better or worse, right? You know that you're going to get, quote, unquote, uh, disruptive tech exposure. My question for you is, is that still a thing? Do, do investors still want that type of exposure? Or was that sort of a byproduct of the uh, frothy market environment of 2020 and in, in 2021? It's a good question. And I think you you pinned the, the tail on the donkey there by saying that they um, stuck to their knitting and that essentially just knitting a crypto sweater over the past two years. It's been uh, largely... Uh, that that asset decline or that that um, you know poor performance has been tied to Ark's exposure to Bitcoin, not just you know, Bitcoin directly, but also you know the associated stocks like Coinbase and I guess even Tesla to an extent. They've maintained that conviction uh, even through the downside in crypto, and that dragged down their performance. Um, but look, Ark pioneered the disruptive tech concept, and for a long time, I think they did it better than anybody else. But that success was also, uh, in part, their downfall, because it spawned copycatters that watered down the idea. Right? So, fund companies who were saying uh, stocks like Apple and Meta are disruptive tech companies, which I guess, sure, you can make the argument that they're leaders in the space, but can a market leader actually also be the market disruptor too, you know? So I think ARK uh, got caught up in uh, essentially a disruptive washing of the market, right? We talk a lot about greenwashing impacting flows into ESG ETFs, but the same disintegration in flows has happened in disruptive tech as performance hasn't really lived up to all the lofty promises that were made um, year to date. ETFs that we categorize as disruptive technology funds on ETFdatabase.com, they're uh, net negative inflows, not neg positive. So we're looking at about maybe segment outflows of about 100 million year to date. And, um, you know, I think to the core of it, uh, ARC's thesis is smart. Find the disruptors who are going to upend the status quo, invest with them with high conviction. But I'm not convinced that any asset manager, including ARC, uh, can pull this off successfully over the long term, even though they try. And that seems to have disillusioned investors on the whole premise. Okay, so on that note of the long term, should, should ARC be doing anything differently from a business perspective moving forward? And I, I know they have uh, filed for several crypto-related ETFs. Obviously, a spot Bitcoin ETF is part of that in uh, partnership with 21 shares. Uh, I know that they're trying to break into Europe, right? They acquired Rise ETF uh, not too long ago. 
I, I think regardless of performance, which obviously at the end of the day, performance is king. That's what investors want. But if if we just move away from that for a moment, I would say that there's no asset manager who is able to market themselves better than ARC. I think Kathy Wood, she still gets plenty of media attention. She's always on the major uh, financial news networks. They get plenty of media coverage. Um, they're, they're very active on social media. Marketing doesn't seem to be an issue. So so my question is, should they be doing anything different to set themselves up for future success? Or do they simply need the market to come back to them? I think, you know, it's it's interesting you bring up the marketing because they are just masters of marketing. Uh, some of the stuff that they've been putting out about uh, how the declines in performance in their funds can be a, a valuable tax loss carry forward strategy. I mean, it's just brilliant. Like great, great marketing there. Um, not as relevant for ETF investors, but, uh, you know, great marketing. Um, I think you know, to answer your question, the the market does need to come back, and I think it will come back, right? Uh, you know, they they have always been very high conviction in crypto. Um, they are, you know, the crypto ETFs uh, is is a very smart expansion for them. They're in line for a Bitcoin ETF approval, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF approval, I should say. Um, last I checked, they'll probably be in that first group to be approved if and when it does get approved. Um, and when they that ETF launches, uh, they'd be able to secure the first mover status. And that could be powerful for them because as we all know, in a new market, whoever's first into the market in the ETF land usually wins. Um, but looking more deeply, I, I honestly wonder if ARC might need to do a little soul searching on the concept and definitions of disruptive tech. If you you know look, just open up their hood and look at ARKK for a second. This fund has 8% in Zoom, 8% in Roku, 5% in Roblox and DraftKings. Like these are the great disruptive picks um, of maybe five years ago, I guess. But markets are really quickly moving now. And I get that the, their idea, their concept is high conviction. But at some point, the disruptor is no longer the disruptor. It's the disrupted. So I, I think maybe getting back to brass tacks, getting back to that knitting that you were talking about, and and just um, you know, kind of getting getting I guess that's what I'm getting at it's just getting back to to basics well that's a really interesting point um so I mean do you think that they have fallen behind on disruptive tech I, I know a lot was made of them um, selling Nvidia prematurely before that went on a huge run earlier this year um are, are Ark and Kathy Wood missing something here or has the disruptive tech space overall uh, evolved. I, I guess I get into how do you view the future of that category and and Arc's positioning in it. It's a good question, and I think the proof is in uh, the performance. Right, we were talking earlier about ARQ, uh, excuse me, ARCQ, and how that seemed to have missed out on the AI uh, wave. You know, if they it, did it really uh, capture the disruptors in that space when it missed out on on the actual disruption. Um, I think that uh, I like to think of disruptive technology as um, it's it's an investment concept that's extremely vague, uh, maybe a little too vague to be actionable, right? It's it's a little bit like a stone thrown into a pond that ripples the water. Few of us can ever see those stones coming, 
But if we're lucky, we can ride the ripples. And uh, I think we're riding one of those ripples right now with the entrance of large language models and artificial intelligence into uh, the market. You know, what company was the stone in this case? AI is impacting every company at every level in every sector at once. That's what it means to be a disruptive force, right? Um, so there, there are a few ETFs that are trying to capture these impacts. There's a few AI ETFs. Of course, I have to mention Robo Global Robotics and Automation Index ETF, which you know tracks a Vetify index. But it's also kind of an old timer in this market. Has a proven track record. Actually, uh, just crossed its 10 year anniversary late last month. And Robo, uh, the sticker Robo, is up 84% over the past 10 years. So, you know, done a, a pretty nice job uh, for itself. Another AI ETF I think is interesting is the State Street S&P Kensho New Economies Composite ETF, ticker KOMP, say that all in one breath, <laughs> I dare you. Um, it, it's got kind of a, uh, a vague name, but it, what it does is it holds AI uh, robotics, uh, pro power processing stocks, and so on. But it also uses AI to pick the AI stocks uh, through this natural language processing algorithm that it has. Kencho has been doing this for years. They seem to be getting it right. Funds up 40% 40, uh, 40 since inception and had a really nice run um, right during when AI was uh, taking off earlier this year. So It's just such an interesting category. I think your point earlier was just, it was really well said in that in the disruptive tech space, you have to move fast or, or you get yeah. disrupted. And that need that needs to be reflected in your ETF holdings. And I think this space is just going to, it moves so fast, it's going to constantly evolve. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. And I, by the way, I should say as part of this entire discussion around ARC, I know ARC and Kathy Wood for years have been um, polarizing. You, you have a camp of investors who, who who love them. You have a camp of investors who hate them and probably everybody somewhere in between. But I, I do want to say becoming even an $11 billion asset manager, um, that's not easy. And I get some of the criticism thrown ARC's way, but we shouldn't lose sight of that fact. And again, I, I, I get it if they're not your cup of tea, but not anyone can build an $11 billion firm. I just think they're a fascinating um, story in the ETF space to to cover just because of the trajectory they've had over the past several years. And uh, again, they'll be interesting to watch moving forward. I don't know if you have any final words before we move on here. <laughs> oh, I think you said it right. Like, the, as I said at the top, there are a lot of ETF issuers that would love to be where ARC is right now. And I think there's a, a really important um, function that managers like ARC serve with those high conviction strategies, like that's what active management's all about. It's It shouldn't be just an excuse to closet index. Like you should have a conviction and, and really lean into it. Like props to them for um, sticking to their guns on that. So yeah, well said. Um, okay. Another story I do want to get your quick thoughts on is Fidelity filing for an ETF share class of their mutual funds last week. And again, as I mentioned at the top, this follows similar filings from PGIA and Dimensional. Um, all of them are seeking to use this for active ETFs. And mm -hmm. so I'll just simply ask you, do you think the SEC is ultimately going to get comfortable with this? And then if so, how big of a deal could this be? So I'm so glad you you brought this up in our, our pre-show discussion, because this is actually one of the stories I'm watching very closely uh, through the remainder of the year. Um, you know, now that Vanguard's 
patent has expired. The doors are open for any asset manager to offer, uh, you know, to file to offer an ETF share class of their mutual funds. And um, I think, you know, what's really interesting is in the case of uh, FM investments, we actually saw the reverse, where there was this ETF issuer who wanted to file for a, a mutual fund share class of their funds. I just I think this is such a fascinating under the radar story because you can make a very compelling argument that the dual share class structure is how Vanguard became the second largest ETF issuer. This is their secret sauce to success. They were able to keep costs low, tax impact low, they could operate in scale. It, it was really the the springboard that um, brought them um, to where they are in the ETF industry. What's so powerful? about this dual share class model is that you can extend the tax benefits of ETFs to all investors in the same strategy, agnostic of vehicle, because you know it's the same stocks or same securities, same portfolio. So you can conceivably use the creation redemption mechanism in the ETF side to reduce the capital gains liability across all of the different share classes and benefit everybody. Um, and at the same time, you can prevent ETFs from um, cannibalizing uh, from the mutual fund and you open up uh, new markets to ETF, uh, ish, you know, e ETF shares and so on. It's really a benefit to investors in the end because it offers more choices to them in more um, ways. And I'll get to that in a second. But um, you, when you look at who are the issuers that this structure, this dual class share structure could help the most, it's probably not the um, the legacy ETF issuers. It's probably going to help the people who have a lot of mutual funds in their in their bucket, uh, the big legacy fo uh, shops like Dimensional and Fidelity. Um, so we'll probably see a lot more of these, um, these uh, ETF share class filings from them. But like you said, here's the thing. The SEC has only ever approved dual share class structure for Vanguard's index funds, not their mutual funds. They actually said no. Uh, excuse me, uh, not their mutual, their active funds. Um, they said no to the active side. So, and most of these shops uh, making these filings now, they offer active mutual funds. That's what they're known for is active management. So, I, I don't know to answer your top of. Uh, the question you just asked, I don't know if the SEC is going to change its mind. It might be looking for um, indications that the uh, the in the active management strategy isn't necessarily one of those highfalutin, um, high conviction, uh, off the wall, wall kind of active uh, strategies, but more of um, uh, a safer or, or more investor uh I, I don't know what the right word is besides safer, um, you know, kind of strategy like a dimensional, right? Um, but here's the interesting thing. I think if FM pulls it off from the other direction and gets approval to convert its ETF shares to mutual fund share class, uh, you know, manages to pull that off, I think we're going to see more ETF issuers uh, doing what FM is doing. And that's going to give access to their strategy and those mutual fund share classes. It's going to finally, finally let the ETF industry crack the uncrackable nut, which is the 401k market, which, as you know, mutual funds have a lock on. So if if they are able to get approval for that, oh, man, the floodgates are going to open, I think. So interesting. I actually visited with uh, FM's Alex Morris uh, maybe three or four weeks ago on this topic. And I think he feels like they have a pretty good chance of getting that through the SEC. The, the one comment I'll make uh, regarding the SEC 
and you, you talked about obviously the index versus active, but Vanguard, they were even on the index side, that was approved a long time ago. And I think the SEC, if if you were to, you know, ask them now, they'd probably say, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Um, Or or maybe they regret it a little bit because now they I I think they're going to have a lot of issuers coming at them and saying, hey, if if you did this for Vanguard, even if it was index based, um, you know, why can't we use this? Yeah, but you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you do that, they might have the regrets, but, uh, you know, what's done is done and the precedent has been set. The interesting aspect here is this share class structure was excluded from the ETF rule, Rule 6C11, intentionally. And so that's why these issuers are having to file for exemptive relief. I I agree with you. It's my take. I think that the SEC should approve this. It needs to be well thought out and and make sure any issues are addressed regarding shareholder cross-subsidization. That's the SEC's main concern, that, say, ETF shareholders are going to get hit with higher cost or some sort of negative tax impact from the uh, the mutual fund side. And I, I think it's good that they're looking at that. But I think overall, the pros of the this share class structure outweigh the cons. Let, let me ask you this to your point on FM. So where do you, let's assume the SEC does get comfortable on, on both of these. What do you think has more upside? Um, is it the ETF side of the equation where you have legacy mutual fund issuers who are going to offer an ETF share class? And so do you see more assets going that way or the other way where you have existing ETF issuers who then want to offer their strategies as a mutual fund and retirement plans, which has bigger upside? I think you uh, may not be surprised. I certainly have an ETF bias. I've been covering the ETF space for a very long time. Um, but I, I do think it's the other way, right? I think it's uh, ETFs um, being able, ETF issuers being able to convert their uh, funds into mutual funds and, and offer that share class. Uh, um, you know, I, I think getting access to the 401k market um, is going to be profound for ETF issuers. All of this growth we've seen, $7 trillion plus in assets under management in ETF land, has happened without access to 401ks. Um, you know, it's, there's some technical reasons why, you know, technical structural reasons why ETFs have been difficult to use in a 401k format. Um, but if these issuers are able to take, uh, you know, the, the IVVs of the world, the low cost, uh, you know, VU and, and, and so on and so forth, take their very low cost, uh, very, you know, um, passive and, 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 and active. If they're able to take their funds and um, move it into the 401k um, market, I think that's just going to unlock so many more uh, dollars moving to these issuers uh, that j- j- just haven't had the access to. I am going to officially log that as an ETF prime hot take. <laughs> I think that a lot of people would uh, would think that it'd be the other way around, that it's the ETF side of the equation. So I like that. That's one that we're going to have to come back and see how it goes if and when the SEC gets comfortable. Uh, Laura, just a few minutes left here. A few weeks ago, uh, I had your colleague Tom Lydon on the podcast, and I asked him for two or three ETF stories he's watching the remainder of the year. Uh, he mentioned alternative income ETFs like Jeppy, uh, and you know that's been a big story now for a couple of years. And, of course, all of the various clones there that we see coming to market. And then he also mentioned alternative strategies like uh, DBMF, the Managed Futures ETF. And so I'm just curious, as the calendar has now turned to November, 
um, I thought I would ask you the same. And, and clearly the ETF share class story that we just talked about is, is something that you're watching. Is there anything else, another couple of stories that you're most interested in tracking the remainder of the year, even into early 2024? Yeah, so there's there's a few, right? I I think uh, my colleague Tom uh, landed on something very smart, which is the the alternative income sources. Um, you know, there's there's we've seen a ton of those come to market and really yeah, gain prominence in 2023. They're obviously going to continue to be um, very important into 2024. Um, you know, I I think uh, I'm keeping my eye on. Treasury ETFs, uh, particularly short-term Treasury ETFs, uh, funds like USFR, right? I, I can't believe this floating note, uh, floating rate note ETF from Wisdom Tree has had such an incredible run over the past twelve months. It's brought in five billion dollars year to date, um, even with all of the rate uncertainty. So, rate uncertainty hasn't seemed to. Uh, deter investors or matter at all in one bit. It just keeps on hoovering in cash. And there's a lot of those um, those ultra short term treasury ETFs that have continued bringing in cash, even as folks, uh, you know, very smart folks in, in the um, the market, like uh, research side and and uh, very smart market uh, experts say, well, you know, maybe you need to start extending duration uh, or you should think about extending duration in portfolio. Um, they still take in so much money. So I, I'm just, I'm curious to see how much longer the investor enthusiasm for funds like USFR can continue on. Uh, that's something I'm keeping an eye on. And then just as a, a matter of curiosity, I think one of the really interesting under the radar stories has been in uranium miners. Um, something that has never really popped on my radar, uh, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, but we've seen kind of a run up in uranium uh, mining specifically as um, alternative energy uh, has gotten more investment and, and you know, climate emergency has been you know, just a dr- constant drumbeat of headlines about we need to do something about uh, the climate emergency right now. Um, and so people are turning back towards nuclear power as a solution um, to clean energy needs. And how does nuclear power work except with uranium? So the uranium miners um, are very, uh, you know, if, if we start using more nuclear power, we're going to need to get that uranium from somewhere. And so let's invest in uranium miners. So we've seen um, quite a few quite a bit of money go into, I think there's one uranium miners ETF, two. There's a, a, a majors and then there's the miners play, both of are offered by Sprott. Um, just keeping my eyes on that, seeing where that's going. I like that. That's a good off the, uh, the radar area to look at. And I know uh, your commodity roots run <laughs> deep, right? <laughs> it's going- true. It's true. I do have a little bit of a bias there. <laughs> By, by the way, on USFR, the Wisdom Tree Floating Rate Note ETF, I agree. I'm surprised. I've talked about this a little bit um, th- this year, but this really has not had the amount of attention and media coverage, even though it has hoovered up just an unbelievable amount of assets. It really is. That's also kind of an off-the-radar story um, that and investors have continued to gravitate towards that. I think you know it's probably a good hedge. If, if we think rates, you, you never know. Uh, could keep going higher. Not a bad place to, uh, to to hide out. But Laura, it's always so much fun chatting. Uh, excellent stuff as always this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify.
Looking to take advantage of what Warren Buffett calls the American tailwind of prosperity? The Gabelli Financial Services Opportunity ETF is actively managed by McRae Sykes to invest in companies leveraged to long-term secular trends. This thematic approach provides the tax efficiency and real-time trading benefits of ETFs. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFs forward slash GABF to learn more. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high-conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. by Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor at ETF.com, who is, of course, one of the leading sources of real-time ETF news and analysis. And Jeff himself has been covering the financial markets and uh, broader financial services industry for over 30 years now. Uh, He was previously a senior columnist at Investment News. Prior to that, he was an analyst at Cerulli Associates and also a money management reporter at Dow Jones Newswires. And he's now on the line with me from Jacksonville, North Carolina. Jeff, it is a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. How you doing? Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, you and I met through your coverage of the ETF space when you were over at Investment News. That was a few years back. And then, as I just Mm -hmm. noted uh, earlier this year, you moved over to ETF.com, and obviously we've stayed connected. And I just thought, given the ETF Prime audience, where we do have a lot of financial advisors and uh, ETF professionals who listen to this, I thought it'd be interesting for them to hear firsthand the perspective of someone covering the ETF space. I I thought you could provide a nice uh, inside look at the types of stories that intrigue you and how you go about writing your pieces. And, And let's be honest, Jeff. Everyone loves a little media coverage as well, right? So maybe you can yep. offer a few tips to listeners regarding that. But I, I guess first, for people unfamiliar with your, your your writing and your background, just just give us a quick snapshot in terms of how you first got involved in the media and talk about your path to ETF.com. Sure. Uh, well, <clears throat> a long, long time ago, I graduated from college with a degree in journalism and um, started out as a sports reporter in Southern Maryland, worked my way up uh Ended up at Dow Jones in Harborside, New Jersey, uh, covering money management in all its various forms. 
Uh, ended up at Cerulli as an analyst and then Dow, um, investment news for a couple of decades. And uh, in August of this year, moved over to ETF.com because of what's uh, what's going on in the ETF space and what ETF.com has has planned for as far as coverage of ETFs and the wealth management industry. What type of uh, sports did you cover early on, just out of curiosity? Uh, well, I was a, a cub reporter in, in all uh, – in all of its uh, definitions, and uh, I was assigned to college lacrosse uh, in Southern Maryland. It's the first uh, lacrosse game I ever saw in my life. Was uh, I was covering it? It was uh, it was Duke and University of Maryland. Fun fact for ETF Prime listeners: I actually played lacrosse when I was younger and played it in Maryland. So maybe that's a, oh, a wow. story for another time. <laughs> what about um, you know? I mentioned that we connected when you were over at Investment News. I'd love to hear when and, and, and how did you specifically get on the ETF beat? Because I do feel like, and I know you've covered a, a broad range of topics, but obviously yeah. you did focus on ETFs. How did that come to fruition? Yeah, well, I mean, I was pretty much the investment management reporter there in Investment News for the longest time. And I was there for a long time, so I covered pretty much everything that you can cover in the in the wealth management space. But investments was always my area, so ETFs just became part of that. It was never exclusively my beat. I covered all things investments, but, you know, it just kind of folded in as ETFs gained momentum. It was what I was doing. And, you know, here in a little bit, I do want to ask you about some specific ETF stories that have your attention, but I, I, I'd love to hear as someone who has covered the broader financial services space for 30 plus years, and obviously ETFs is part of that. What, what do you think makes for a good story, just at a higher level? Like, what do you look for mm-hmm. in a story that you think makes it worth covering? Well, news is always important. And, you know, there, there's all kinds of stories out there, features and analysis and stuff like that. But news always gets our attention. Exclusive news, meaning we have it first, is is even better. That's going to get top billing. Um, at ETF.com, we're looking to news related to the ETF space and the broader, uh, I guess, financial advice industry. Okay. And so as you're covering these stories, you're interviewing people, right? You're looking for uh, good knowledge experts. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming there are situations where you, you need these resources to help educate you, right, in order to, to write your stories accurately. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Like, how do you typically go about finding good sources and what makes for a good source? Uh-huh. That's a great question. Um, well, I find sources by networking, reading, paying attention to what my competitors are doing, uh, finding people like yourself, Nate, to uh, to kind of sidle up to and, and make, build a relationship with. Uh, it, 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 I think financial advisors at large don't really appreciate how much they are sought after by the media because of their expertise and their their varied perspectives on all things kind of financial and economic and, and I guess, financial planning-related, investment-related. Um, I mean, to me, a good source is somebody who is reliable, available, credible, accessible. Uh, I mean, accessible is, is incredibly important. I, you know, Nate, I reach out to you semi-regularly. I'll send you an email. You'll respond, hopefully, in a short order. That's always key, getting stuff to us early because we're usually working on some kind of deadline. You mentioned financial advisors being sought after. 
And, you know, I think a lot of advisors, they wait for uh, media to reach out to them. And I guess my Mm -hmm. question for you is, should advisors reach out to someone like you if they think they're a good resource? Or is that frowned upon? Like if someone sees you writing frequently about, uh, I I don't know, bond ETFs, and they Uh view themselves as a a bond ETF expert, should they reach out to you or should they just hope that you find them? No, absolutely reach out. Be proactive. Uh, pitch your stories. Uh, write, send, send an email. Uh, in my case, my cell phone number is in my email signature. I'm always available. But uh, I, I'm actually doing a presentation in Chicago next week about how financial advisors can work with the media. And it just blows my mind how much opportunity is out there that I don't think a lot of advan- uh, financial advisors realize or take advantage of. Uh, it's, it's not difficult to build relationships with reporters, and reporters are looking for what's inside your head if you're a financial advisor. And, and keep in mind, you know, reporters are pack animals. If you're, if you're quoted somewhere or you're on some podcast or a television interview, other reporters are going to find you and seek you out. It's it just going to feed on itself. It you know it does take a little extra time to build those relationships, but if you want to use that tool as a as a way to elevate your own status as an expert, and you know you're going to get prospects through that. I just don't. I, I see it as a as kind of a no brainer marketing strategy for financial advisors. You offered some good tips earlier on how people should interact with with you and the broader media. I'm curious, what shouldn't people do when interacting with you? Do you have any particular pet peeves when when dealing with Um, uh, people? Well, you shouldn't ask to have your your quotes checked once the story is in the process or being worked. You shouldn't ask to to see the, the story before it's published. Um, and elaborate just, on that. No, that's a that's a good one. I'd love to have you elaborate well, on that because I don't think some people maybe well, fully it, appreciate it, that. It, it, to me, it happens more often when somebody is being represented by a public relations person, but the uh, person, the PR person, might say, "Okay, you just finished interviewing. We need to see the quotes before they go." And to me, if if you're not comfortable standing behind the words coming out of your own mouth on a particular topic, then maybe you shouldn't be working with the media. And and some people, that's the case. Sometimes it's a compliance issue. But if you're asking to for the reporter to come back to you after an interview and read you their quotes or, or share with you the story before it goes into publication, that just slows down the process. And that's never a good thing. I mean, if you're somebody that is, you know, a Warren Buffett or somebody, I don't know if Warren Buffett does that, but, you know, that's a, that's a pretty exclusive interview. A reporter might, you know, kind of bend over a little bit for you, but if, if, you know, you're trying to get yourself in the media, you're trying to build relationships with reporters, don't put up these hurdles that is just going to make it more difficult. And it really doesn't, doesn't do anything except kind of, you know, slow the whole process down. Yeah, and I would maybe even go a little bit of a step further and say I, I think it's a tad bit insulting in that, um, you know, I know the skill set of a lot of the people working in media. And at the end of the day, you have very smart individuals. You have to trust their judgment and you know mm-hmm. their creativity and the way they view the world in writing the story. And sometimes you're going to interact with the media 
and maybe they'll take, again, the words that are coming out of your mouth and maybe the narrative around those isn't exactly what you want it to be, but so goes it. It's somebody else's perspective. Everybody mm-hmm. has different viewpoints on what's going on. I think that's just part of the game right. if you're going to interact with the media. you know, Everything's not always going to be teed up perfectly to make you look in the best light. It, it's not because a reporter is trying to paint somebody in a bad light. It's, they're using their creative <laughs> juices and, and the way they view the world to craft a story. Right. Um, what, what, what else in terms of things that people either should or shouldn't do when interacting with someone like you? Uh, well, like I said, it's important to be responsive and, and quick. If, like I use a, a lot of the media query resources out there. XY Planning has a good one. The Financial Planning Association has a good one where you can a reporter can send out a query in the morning or whenever and, you know, you get feedback from people that are on those platforms you'll get responses to your to your questions and my advice is always to if you have something to say on the topic don't wait a couple hours or the end of the day which happens sometimes send it out right away sometimes you get a lot of responses to those queries and the first ones are going to get the most attention so you know be responsive also make yourself available i mean i don't understand why some of these websites don't have ways for media to reach you if that's your goal put a phone number on there have an email that doesn't just look like a blind email that i'm sending into you know from process from a prospect or something like that um like i said it's it's not difficult and you'll be surprised how many reporters are looking for financial advisors because of their expertise no, that's great guidance. What about social media activity? Like, you know, I, I think it's well known. I like to have fun out on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've done it more. Just I, I get a kick out of it. But if I'm being honest, I do think it's helped with my visibility and has helped me get in front of some media sources. Is that a resource that you use? Are you out on social yeah. media? Do you do you pay attention to that? I, I am I am most active on Twitter or X or whatever they call it now. I also am on LinkedIn. Um, those are my two primaries. Um, and I've heard people say X now. It's it's really a, a where reporters go to look for stories and sources. So get yourself positioned there. I would recommend it. Um, also. Reporters are going to appreciate if, you know, you uh, retweeting or whatever they call it, reposting their stories, um, acknowledging the fact that you were voted in a story. That's all that all feeds the kind of the beast of building, uh, I guess, building appeal of a particular story of a reporter, uh, building that relationship. I mean, I've had people reach out to me directly on social media and that's the way they found me. And that's the way we've built relationships. No, I couldn't agree more. I, I find it invaluable uh, personally. Um, okay, Jeff, with our remaining time, um, I would love to hear the ETF stories on your radar right now. And you, you don't have to give us everything that you're working on. I don't know if you have any pieces in progress. But as you look at it, you know, these, these next couple of months of the year and even into 2024, what are maybe two mm-hmm. or three ETF stories that have your attention right now? And, and by the way, once you offer these up, given the advice that you just previously gave, you might get a flood of emails and phone calls, <laughs> people uh, offering up to be uh, resources on these stories. But but give us a couple of stories you're watching. Yeah, I, I hope I do get a flood of uh, uh, emails or whatever, phone calls. Um, please, I'm, I'm not kidding. Reach out to me. I'm, my, I'm not one of these people who turns their phone off at at the end of the day, I'm always available. Email, call me, whatever. 
Um, here are some of the things that we're looking at here at ETF.com. Um, mutual fund conversions. This is obviously, you know what that is, converting a mutual fund to an ETF, Nate. This is, I, I think the floodgates are going to open on this. I know some people over at Bloomberg Intelligence feel the same way about this. One example I heard recently was uh, if Fidelity converted their indexed mutual funds to ETFs, they would be one of the top three or four ETF providers in the space right now. That shows you the kind of potential that's out there. Another example is ETF share classes. I don't know if any have been have been created yet, but I know there's some applications out there, and I think Fidelity is one of the ones that has an application uh, creating a share class for an ETF for a mutual fund of an ETF. Um, I think it's pretty interesting that legacy mutual fund companies they're they're no longer denying the ETF space. Some of these fund companies like um, T Row is a good example. They they haven't been in the ETF space that long, but they're a giant company and they got a lot of, a lot to offer, uh, mostly in the active space. Uh, obviously, spot Bitcoin that's all over the place. Um, Lucy Brewster, one of our reporters here, she's she's been covering that like crazy. Um, I, who knows? It's just fun to talk about. Every time it looks like there is going to be one, you see a little bump in the price of, of Bitcoin. Um, one of my personal pet projects is to figure out how and why and when we can start see, seeing ETFs on 401k plan menus. I, I, do, I know there's some rules and reasons that, that can't be done, but I also think it's part of a uh, – uh, there's been some barricades being put up by the mutual fund industry because they've got that, uh, they've kind of got that, uh, held down pretty tight. Um, and then, uh, there's always the fun story to talk about of, uh, the iShares 20 year treasury bond ETF, ticker TLT. It's all over the place. It's leading, I think it's leading, uh, all ETFs and inflows this year or close to it. Uh, but it's, the performance is dogged, and you know every time I ask somebody about that, they say, "Well, it's probably in a lot of model portfolios or something like that, or people are buying it to position for some kind of a turnaround." I don't understand it, Nate. I know I've probably asked you questions about TLT. Um, you know, I, I personally don't understand it, but it's fun to watch. Boy, I've got to tell you, so I was taking notes as you went through those. Um, <laughs> a couple of things jump out to me. Maybe you can react here. So you, you mentioned legacy mutual fund companies continuing mm-hmm. to move into the ETF space, and, and you offer two paths there, the mutual fund to ETF conversions, which that's obviously one way they're getting involved. But I think you're right. I think the ETF share class um, story is going to be very interesting to watch. I was actually visiting earlier with uh, Vetify's Laura Krieger, and, and mm-hmm. we chatted about this. She had a very interesting take, which tied into another one of the stories you mentioned in terms of ETFs and 401k plans. She thinks, I don't know if you saw this filing from FM Investments, uh, I think it was maybe a month or two ago, where they're actually looking to do the opposite. They're, they're looking to take their single treasury bond ETFs and offer mm-hmm. them in a mutual fund format. And that's their way of cracking the the 401k nut. So I, 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 think, I love that. Really. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, I, I think that whole, th- this whole idea, A, of, of any legacy mutual fund company that has not yet moved into the ETF space, they're trying to figure out how to get involved now, and there are these mm-hmm. different paths available to them. But I think it's interesting thinking about how the ETF business cracks the 401k market. Now, I, I will say um, there are all ETF 401k plans out there, but you're right in that uh, it's not the e- – 
all the all the kinks aren't ironed out on those just mm-hmm. yet. Uh, but I, I think that's yeah. an interesting story to watch. TLT, I, I'm fascinated by that one as well. I mean, you look at these massive flows into the space. TLT performance has been absolutely atrocious. You've had everybody <laughs> yeah. trying to call a peak in rates and, and just getting bludgeoned. And look, this isn't investment advice. It's 100% possible that rates go higher from here. That's possible. Yeah. And and that, that trade could get worse for those people. So we'll see what happens there. Spot Bitcoin ETFs, I think you know that's always one of my favorite topics. The question I have for you on that, Jeff, is um, how do I explain this? I know that that topic, I know just personally from what I tweet about and, and some of the content that I put out there, people love that topic. And so as mm-hmm. as somebody covering the ETF space, I think you probably know if you write about um, Spot Bitcoin ETFs, you're probably going to get a lot of views and, and eyeballs. Do, mm-hmm. do, does that impact things or do you get like worn out on stories like that because it's been talked about so much and, and maybe you're not a crypto fan? I, how, how do you view that spot Bitcoin ETF story? Well, first of all, I'm not the one that makes all the decisions or, or many of the decisions about the kind of things we cover. I kind of bring ideas to the table and do my own reporting. We have a you know a team here, but um yeah, we, we see the appetite. We know there's appetite. It's It's no secret that we're, you know, we can track the page views and stuff like that. But it's a dynamic base right now. The the spot Bitcoin, I, I mean there's there's real things happening. I don't think we're I don't think we're just writing spot Bitcoin stories for page views. It's we'll, I know we have a pretty strict policy on, on trying to make sure that there's actually news in our stories. Um, and, and the same thing goes with TLT. TLT is a is, is the popular topic, but there's a lot going on. Um, I you know, personally, I guess I own a little bit of Bitcoin, but uh, not enough to uh, send me toward retirement if things go back toward uh, where they were a few years ago. But um, I, I don't know. It, it's just to me when you when you see these the kind of the status of the firms that are filing for a spot Bitcoin ETF, you have to just see that as a bullish sign for crypto. Um, and I'm not talking about once it happens. I'm talking about. These are, you know, we're talking BlackRock, Fidelity. These are firms that know what the heck they're doing in this space. And if they see this as, as the potential, I don't know how you can ignore the potential of crypto. Well, even putting that aside, I think just as we look over the next, uh, say, 6 to 12 months, this this is a story that's going to keep on giving because obviously oh, yeah. we're, we're leading up, it, it, it appears, to approval of these products. It's going to be interesting to see if there's a common clock where the SEC lets all of these launch on the same day. I think there's still Mm -hmm. an outside possibility that many of these do launch on the same day, but perhaps grayscale is left out of that. I could see a scenario like that. That would be an interesting story. Um, Not far behind spot Bitcoin ETFs. I think we're going to have spot uh, Ethereum ETFs. I think that's pretty easy to see. If we have approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs and spot Ether ETFs, well, then guess what? We're probably going to have... Uh, a combined spot Bitcoin and Ether ETF. And then things just keep progressing from there. So I don't, I don't, I know uh, I kind of joke on this podcast a little bit. I've, I've gotten some uh, ribbing because I, I cover this topic so much, but it's, it's not going away. And so I, I mm-hmm. just think it's the story no. that's going to keep on uh, giving, but um, Jeff, well, we, here, here, go here, ahead. One, one more thing on, on, on spot Bitcoin is, you know, I've done a, lot of stories over the past few years about financial advisors and the way that they look down their nose at crypto in general. And it, it is, it's such an interesting 
kind of collision course here with financial advisors being the biggest users of exchange-traded funds and exchange-traded funds moving toward crypto. I, I don't know. I mean, I talk to financial advisors and like, eh, we don't know, maybe when it's a spot product or something like that. But if if financial advisors get on the crypto bandwagon and crypto goes goes ETF, um, again, that's that's just rocket fuel for the space, I think. That's a great point. And I know it's been well documented, but you have a lot of uh, younger investors now with investable assets or you have this large shift of assets going from you know, quote unquote, boomers to their kids. And what do a lot of those younger investors have an interest in? It's crypto. And so mm-hmm. I think that's interesting from the financial advisor perspective. I've said, though, just uh, from more of an investment perspective, the, the best uh, corollary here is to physical gold ETFs. And you know this from covering the space for 30 plus years. Right. If you talk to 10 advisors, you're going to have probably five advisors who, who love gold, and you're going to have five advisors who absolutely hate gold, right? <laughs> yep. and, and they look at gold and go, this is just a, sh- you know, a shiny rock that, that sits around, doesn't do anything. And then you'll, you'll have others who go, hey, this thing's been around for 5,000-plus years. It's, been, it's proved itself as a store of value, et cetera. Obviously, crypto hasn't been a long for, around for 5,000 years, but I think it's a similar dynamic mm-hmm. there in that you have I'm, – I'm just – saying this high level, half of advisors who go, yeah, I see that there could be potential merit here. And then you have half of advisors who go, this is the most ridiculous vaporware yep. <laughs> right, I've ever seen. So, yeah, that's, that's, yeah I, I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's definitely, I see a lot that are kind of stiff arming crypto right now. Yeah, for sure. But uh, Jeff, this was so much fun. We're going to have to leave it there. If people want to connect with you or reach out to you, What's the best way for them to do so? And don't don't give your phone number or anything like that. But if they want to find you, what, what's the best yeah, way? Yeah, uh, well, you go to etf.com. I'm I'm usually all over that site, but my email address is jeff.benjamin at etf.com. Or uh, look for me at on Twitter at Benji Writer. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you can find me on Facebook, you you, you found me because I'm not there very much. <laughs> well, again, really uh, enjoy the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That was Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor at ETF.com. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Tema ETFs. If you would like to learn more about the CANC Oncology Fund, you can visit temaetfs.com slash CANC. Next week, I'll be joined by Tony Bancroft, Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Gabelli Funds. So we're going to discuss the future of Gabelli's ETF business and spotlight several of their existing ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.